So if you have a Bible, you might want to turn it open. And this morning, uh, I'm just going to give you a bit of an overview of uh, the message of Jonah. And uh, then next week, Dave Lockyer is going to be picking up from the rest of chapter 1. But we're going to read a few verses um, from Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And then we're going to read a verse, the last verse of Jonah. Jonah chapter 4, verse 11. This morning's talk is entitled, God's Heart for the City. And uh, that will become evident what that's all about. So if you've got your Bible, you can turn with me. If you haven't, don't worry, it should come up on the screen behind me. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. And then chapter 4, verse 11. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Should I not be concerned about that great city? That's what God says at the end of Jonah. And uh, so this morning we're going to be considering God's heart for the city. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, the film A Beautiful Mind. Uh, It's a film with Russell Crowe. It's a few years old now. But if you've seen that film, it's uh, quite an unusual film because as you watch it, you think one thing is... is, uh, You think the story's about one thing and... um, Uh, About three quarters of the way through the film, you suddenly start to uh, get an indication that maybe uh, what's going on isn't quite what you thought at the start. And by the end of the film, as you've watched it all, uh, you can never watch the film the same way again. Because when you go back and watch it a second time, you know that there's actually a different story going on behind the scenes than the one you first thought was happening. And when you read the book of Jonah, Jonah comprises 48 verses, that's all, and it tells a story with an unexpected twist at the end. God tells Jonah to go and preach to the people of Nineveh. Shockingly, Jonah heads in the opposite direction. He gets on the nearest boat going to Tarshish, some Bible hero. The last thing we would have expected to find as we uh, heard God speaks to Jonah and says, go to Nineveh. Yet God's on his case. And as he's on the boat, he brings about a violent storm which culminates in Jonah being thrown overboard and swallowed alive by a big fish. Inside the fish's belly, Jonah comes to his senses and cries out to God. And God hears his cry And the result is the fish vomits Jonah onto the shoreline uh, three days later. God then comes to Jonah a second time and tells Jonah to go and preach to Nineveh again. This time, Jonah's learned his lesson and he goes and obeys. And as a result of his blunt preaching, he just, uh, just recorded, eight words are recorded. This is what he says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. I mean, that doesn't seem to me to be exceptional preaching. But as a result of his blunt preaching, the whole city turns to God. 
I mean, you'd think that was it, wouldn't you? You'd think, well, job done, Jonah goes home, he's happy, glad, rejoices, end of the story. But we are surprised to find out, stunned in fact, to find out that Jonah is still as rebellious as he was at the start of the book. Once you've read the ending, you can never read Jonah the same way again. And over the coming weeks, we're going to find out that God has much to say to us from this Old Testament book. We're going to see God's great heart of compassion, not just to the wicked people of Nineveh, but to a recalcitrant prophet with a rotten heart. As we focus this morning on God's heart for the city, be assured this isn't about geography, it's not about demographics, it's about God's great heart to save men and women. And before we go any further, I want to ask you the question, where does the book of Jonah sit on the library shelf? Is it fact or is it fiction? So many people have struggled with this over the years. Is Jonah, uh, uh, is it just a book of fiction that just tells us, gives us a few key principles? Or is it fact? If you've ever read uh, Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, now when that book came out, it created huge consternation. Uh, and it was written, there were, uh, the, uh, the introduction to the book, the start, the preface, uh, indicated, almost indicated it was real. And people believed that the, the Da Vinci Code and the message of the Da Vinci Code was real. And so there are people probably still walking around Britain today who've read it, and they probably still believe that Jesus had a child. And they're walking around today probably still believing that because they believed what Dan Brown said in the Da Vinci Code. That was a novel. Was Jonah, the book of Jonah, is it just the same? Is it just a novel? Is it just a myth? See, people dismiss it as fiction. A fish that swallows a man thrown overboard in a violent storm, who through three days later is spewed out onto the beach. There's a national repentance in Nineveh, and the whole city turns back to God. And then right at the end of the story, there's a plant that grows up overnight, and then just as quickly as it appears, is destroyed by a little worm. You're having a laugh, aren't you? Jonah, real? Gosh, no, it's not real, it's just a myth. Actually, it isn't so easy to write off Jonah. As Terry Virgo says, myths don't have names and addresses. Jonah was the son of Amittai, we're told. He came from a real place called Gath-Hefer, we read in 2 Kings. Jesus talked about Jonah as if he was a real historical person and was just like the Queen of Sheba. You can read that in Luke chapter 11. The book of Jonah is written like every other piece of historical narrative in the Old Testament. And from 2 Kings chapter 14, we can deduce that Jonah was either uh, 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 just before or was a contemporary of King Jeroboam II. And during the period of that king's reign, Israel was strong and prosperous. And yet God describes that king's reign uh, in, in less than glowing terms. 
And God says this about Jeroboam. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That was the day that Jonah was around. That was the time that Jonah was prophesying. The Bible later tells us that the whole nation had become greedy and self-indulgent. There is more than a passing resemblance to 21st century Britain. The day that Jonah lived in was not too different to the day that we live in today. The picture Jonah paints of Nineveh is accurate. The Assyrians, we know from history, the Assyrians worshipped many gods and boasted an army that engendered terror wherever they went. They were ruthlessly cruel. They burnt whole cities. They skinned leaders of uh, opposing armies alive. They impaled victims alive on stakes, decapitated captives. When the Assyrians were on the horizon, people shook with fear. They were a cruel, horrible people. And the Old Testament prophet Nahum summed this up when he said of them, Who has not felt your endless cruelty? Nineveh was the opposite of everything that the Israelites, the people of Israel, held dear. So what about the whale? Could a big fish swallow a man whole and then him remain alive for three days? I mean, surely that's ludicrous. Well, they say that sperm whales in the Mediterranean Sea could swallow a man alive and have been known to vomit the contents of their stomach onto the beach. And there are alleged cases of sailors being swallowed alive by a whale and surviving. It's alleged that a guy called James Bartley on the whaling ship Star of the East fell overboard near the Falkland Islands and a day later was cut alive from inside a whale. He was bleached white by the whale's gastric juices. There may be doubts over the story's authenticity, but it is a possibility. What about Nineveh? Surely a city with 120,000 people Three times the size of Winchester all those years ago? Well, Nineveh was destroyed in 612 BC by a coalition of Babylonians, Medes and Scythians. Nineveh was located on the eastern bank of the Tigris River. It's uh, opposite what would now, uh, now is the modern day city of Mosul, uh, which is about 250 miles north of Baghdad. Archaeologists who found the city, um, uh, rediscovered it, found that Nineveh was a massive city in Jonah's day. It was about three and a half miles by 1.5 miles big. It had a wall 40 to 50 feet high, which was so wide at the top, they reckon you could have had chariot races on it. The great city of Nineveh that the book of Jonah refers to is probably like how we refer to Greater London, the Greater Nineveh area. Nineveh was a real place. This plant, what about this plant? Surely it's impossible. It's impossible for us to grow anything overnight. Plants don't grow up overnight, do they? Plants, they don't as quickly disappear. Well, I mean, I know on that side, I can kill a plant as quickly as it's appeared. I mean, I can destroy a plant overnight. I don't have green fingers. 
But how could, could a plant really have appeared overnight? There is a, a plant a, 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 a called a palm crisp, which has a fleshy leaf, which can grow up incredibly quickly in dry, arid climates, but it, which is vulnerable to one particular little grub, little worm. I believe that Jonah should be placed firmly in the fact section of the library. Rather than it being allegorical, it's an account of God breaking into history. It's an account of God coming into this world to demonstrate his great heart for men and women. And this morning, I want to highlight three attributes of this God from these few verses. First of all, Jonah reminds us that God is great. God is great. You see, this story may seem impossible or improbable. But actually, it may seem improbable, but it is not impossible. You see, the Bible tells us that nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is too difficult for God. Nineveh is described on several occasions as the great city. But the message of Jonah is that it isn't Nineveh that's great, it's God that's great. Leslie Allen in his commentary on Jonah says this, God is represented as the Lord of the nations, to whom the whole world is held morally accountable. If Nineveh is great... God is greater. You see, sadly today, the surprise isn't the low view of God that's held outside uh, the church. The sad thing is, is that people within the church have such a low view of God. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says this. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted it for one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshipping men. What's your view of God like? Do you have a view of a God that is great, a God that can do absolutely anything? Or is your view of God low and unworthy of a thinking and worshipping person? The Old Testament prophet Isaiah challenges us with asking the following rhetorical questions. This is what he says in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12 and 13. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of Yahweh? Or what man shows him counsel? Last week I was reading uh, the Sunday paper and there was an article on this environmental disaster in the Gulf of Mexico. This oil spillage from this BP oil well. And uh, it was attempting to put the scale of the spillage of the leak into perspective. And uh, it was in light of all the political capital being made uh, in uh, American political circles at the expense of BP. And uh, it was trying to just bring a measure of perspective of the amount of oil that was leaking into the Gulf of Mexico. And what it was saying was this, that every day the equivalent 
of two Olympic-sized swimming pools full of oil was spilling into the Gulf of Mexico, which by comparison contained around one billion Olympic-sized swimming pools of water. Wow, that puts it into perspective. And Isaiah is trying to do the same thing. He's trying to put things in perspective. He's trying to catch us up in the greatness of God. I mean, how much water can you hold in the palm of your hand? How much water could you hold there? Maybe 70 or 80 millilitres? Maybe? Well, Andrew Wilson, in his book Incomparable, says that the oceans contain around 328 million cubic miles of water. And Isaiah portrays God holding it all in the hollow of his hand. Hallelujah. Isaiah portrays God measuring, uh, counting the stars in the Milky Way. Counting the stars in the heavens. To count the stars in our Milky Way, where uh, the galaxy that contains our sun. I mean, if we counted one star every second, it would take about 11.5 days, solidly counting, for us to count the stars in our galaxy. To count all, uh, sorry, to count all the stars in our galaxy, it, sorry, it would take 3,150 3, years counting at that rate. 3,150 years. Just to count, I'm getting confused myself, even explain it to you, because the numbers are so big. It's so huge. I mean, it's massive, isn't it? 3,150 uh, uh, 3,150 years to count the stars in our galaxy. And there are millions and millions of other galaxies, all with similar number of stars in them. And Isaiah simply says, God has marked off the heavens with a span. Wow. Wow. We need a fresh revelation of the greatness of God. The world is full of foolish people who are quick to tell God what he should do, be doing, but have no understanding of the God in whom they are passing judgment. Romans chapter 1 verse 22 says of such people, although they claim to be wise, they are really fools. And over the next few weeks we will see that Jonah was just like that. He thought God was wrong to want to save the people of Nineveh. They were Israel's arch enemies. They were cruel, awful people and Jonah wanted the Ninevites to get what they deserved. What's your view of God? Maybe you simply don't believe in the existence of God. In which case, whatever I say this morning will just pass you by and will make no difference to you. You'll carry on living the few short days you have left on this earth before you pass into eternity when you will find out whether you are right or wrong. All I can say is, rather you than me. Perhaps you believe in 
God. But you think he's someone to be questioned and occasionally criticised. What on earth does God think he's doing in the world? Why did he allow that to happen to me? That's just not fair. Perhaps you're facing what feels like is an impossible situation. Maybe you're in financial meltdown. Maybe the company you work for is in real trouble. Maybe your job is at risk. Maybe uh, relationships around you are ruined. Maybe someone else has done something that has devastated you. And you are feeling so hurt and wounded inside. Maybe practically things are just not working out for you. Life isn't turning out to be what you thought. And you can't see a way out for yourself. You need to focus on the greatness of God this morning. Nothing is too difficult for him. When Paul thought and was overwhelmed with the greatness of God, this is what he said in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. God is truly great. I want to challenge you this morning. With the same challenge that the book of Jonah leaves us with. This God is great and he deserves our worship. The second thing I want you to see is this. God is great, but God is also just. On Tuesday this week, the Savile Report was published. I don't know if you've been following this. But it concluded that the 14 people killed on Bloody Sunday in Derry in 1972 were unjustifiably killed by British soldiers. One of the subsequent quotes said this, We've waited all these years for the truth to emerge. It's a good day for justice. Someone once said this, Justice is when God works out what belongs to whom and makes sure that they get it. The verse that we read at the beginning of Jonah tells us that the sins of the Ninevites had come up before God. And God had decided it was time for justice. Jonah was sent to pronounce God's verdict. When you hear about some of the terrible things that happen in the world, how do you respond? When you heard the news uh, a few weeks ago of these 12 people killed in Cumbria by Derek Bird, what was your reaction? Was it momentary interest? Indifference? Sadness? Anger? I bet most of us couldn't remember the name of even one of the people that was killed. I believe probably most of us couldn't remember one name. God is not like us. He hates injustice. He is so angry at sin You need to hide from the fierceness of his anger. Our anger at injustice is a pale reflection of the God in heaven 
who is heartbroken when he sees things like this happen. If you're heartbroken over some of the things that you see happening around, then God is far more so. The Bible's full of the things that mark our society. Senseless murder, rape, illness, genocide. And God is outraged. God hates sin. God hates it. And to understand why people seem to be getting away with terrible things, we need to have an eternal perspective. We need to see the big picture. Andrew Wilson says this, that we just need to wind the story forward a bit. Because God promises there will come a day when accounts will be settled. Romans chapter 14 tells us this, that we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. We all want, inju- we all want justice, at least for everybody else. I remember when my dad was killed in a car accident. It was killed in a car accident. Someone jumped a light going the other way and smashed straight into the side and killed outright. I wanted justice. And when the, the sentence was passed and there was a small fine and a ban from driving for 18 months, there was something inside me that said, God, that's not fair. That's not just. We all want justice. And yet, the person that was crying out that in his heart has himself once or twice jumped lights. Gone through lights when they were more red than amber. I want justice for other people, but I I don't want it for myself. Psalm 94 verse 1 and 2 says this. O Lord, the God who avenges, O God who avenges, shine forth, rise up, O judge of the earth, pay back the proud what they deserve. You see, the hope of justice is woven through the pages of the Bible. Whilst that gives us comfort that those who do terrible things will one day get the justice they deserve, do you know what? There is a much more pointed application. Each one of us stands guilty before a holy God whose standards are perfect. Each one of us stands guilty before God. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 sums it up like this. God's just anger is revealed against the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. See, the primary issue isn't the things that that we do. It's our godlessness. Living without God. That's the essence of what the Bible calls sin. That's what's wrong with this world. Godlessness, people who suppress, press down the truth about God that is so evident from the world around, from the creation around. There is so evidently a God who made this world. This world did not happen by accident. It was created by a a creative God in heaven. It was made by God. That's what the world tells us. But people suppress the truth. They press it down. They live godless lives, lives without reference to God. That's what Paul tells the Romans. 
Jesus emphasised that to the shock of the religious people of the day. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, it's not just what you do, it's what's in your heart that matters. So it isn't about whether you've committed adultery, it's whether you've had lustful thoughts in your heart. Everybody was undone as they listened to it. Jonah stands as a warning to every one of us. You see, God knew that not only were the Ninevites a bad bunch, but he knew Jonah's heart was rotten. You can't hide from God's penetrating gaze. No one can stand before God and say that the intentions of their heart have been pure. Sin isn't a popular word today. It's not a politically correct word in the world that we live in. And yet the punishment for sin before God is death. Separation from God forever. And each one of us will be held accountable and held responsible by God for our own sin. Every thought, every word, every deed, everything that we didn't do that we should have done. That's a personal challenge to us. You know, we need to be right before God. God will show justice in the end. God is just. His throne is established on righteousness and justice. Our sin needs to be dealt with if we're going to come into God's presence. Maybe you're struggling with injustice this morning. Things that happened to you in the past. Things that you're going through right now. Your heart cries out, it's just not fair. Maybe it's things happening in work, the way the boss is treating you. Maybe the way your friends are treating you in college, university. Maybe your neighbours. Maybe you feel misunderstood, mistreated and unappreciated. Let me encourage you this morning, not to hold it in your heart, but to give it to a God who understands. Give it to a God who is just and fair. Receive peace from him and allow him to sort it out in his time and in his way. As a church, we need to stand up like Jonah as God's voice to the world around us. We need to declare the justice of God. As far as we can, we need to care for the poor, the needy, the disenfranchised, those that are marginalised, the unborn, those who are suffering. You know, we can't do everything here in Winchester Family Church, but we can do something. And he wants to use us to demonstrate his justice to a needy world. God is just. Finally this morning, I want you to see this from this story. God is gracious and merciful. You see, the very fact that Jonah was called to preach to the Ninevites shows that God hadn't written them off. He was going to judge them, but it wasn't the end of the story. They were being given an opportunity to turn around. That's the wonderful message through the Bible. God is just, but he expresses mercy and extends mercy and grace towards us. You see, we get confused at the concept of a God of justice and a God who is gracious and merciful. We sort of think that God gets out of bed some days and you think, right, well, I'm, I'm really cross today. I'm really fed up. I've had a really bad night's sleep. I'm going to sort them out. And then some days he gets up and goes, oh, this is a nice day. Oh, the sun's shining. I'm feeling good today. Oh, I feel, I'm feeling, I'm going to, I'm going to bless some people today. 
As if we, God is somehow schizophrenic. That he goes from, goes from one extreme to another, but he, that's not like, that's not what God is like. God is both just and gracious and merciful at the same time, all the time. God is always just and he is always gracious and merciful. He isn't like Gollum in Lord of the Rings. If you've seen Lord of the Rings and you see this character and he goes, one minute he's nice, oh my precious, then the next minute he's, kill him, kill him. You know, it's not like that. God isn't like that. He isn't like that. God is always just and merciful. You see, although they seem opposite to us, they are equally a part of God's character. How can it be? The answer is that God shows mercy to the guilty by carrying out his justice on somebody else. The punishment is transferred to a substitute. That's the point of the Old Testament. Right through the Old Testament, it talks about sacrifices. God was unable to forgive people's sin without there being an animal sacrifice. And yet, that was only a foreshadow. It's a little picture of what God was going to do on the cross. When God sent his son into the world 2,000 years ago, his son came to this world to be our substitute. And Jesus hung on the cross and received the just and right anger of God at our sin, our wrongdoing. So that we can be free. That we can be forgiven. That he could show us mercy. God showed his justice on the cross 2,000 years ago when Jesus died that we might receive grace and mercy. Hallelujah. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 to 26 puts it like this. For all have sinned. All fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet now God in his gracious kindness declares us not guilty. He has done this through Christ Jesus who has freed us by taking away our sins. For God sent Jesus to take the punishment for our sins and to satisfy God's anger against us. We are made right with God when we believe that Jesus shed his blood sacrificing his life for us. God was being entirely fair and just when he didn't punish those who sinned in former times. And he is entirely fair and just in this present time when he declares sinners to be right in his sight because they believe in Jesus. Hallelujah! In Jonah chapter 4 verse 11, the reference to 120,000 people of Nineveh not knowing their right hand from their left is a reminder that people are ignorant about God. God is so concerned, so passionate for these people, he sends Jonah to him, to them. The Hebrew word for concerned is the word hus. It means literally to have tears in one's eyes. God wept over Nineveh. God wept over Nineveh. Similarly, Jesus, we've heard about earlier, wept over Jerusalem. Today, God weeps over the people of Winchester and is calling us to be Jonah-like in proclaiming God's great message of grace. 
If you've ever read Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace, he tells an Ernest Hemingway story. And the story is that there's a Spanish father who wants to be reconciled to his son Paco. This son has run away to Madrid. And the father puts an advert in the El Liberal newspaper. And the, new, and the, the message says this, Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana noon Tuesday. All is forgiven, Papa. When the father gets there, he finds, to his shock, 800 young men, all called Paco, waiting for their fathers. If the people of Winchester knew how much God loved them, there would be many who would come running home. Today is Father's Day. God is our great Father. He loves men and women. He loves you. Maybe you're like that this morning. Maybe you never knew how much God loved you. God wants you to come home. He is gracious to you. He has punished his son that you might come home. That you might know his great fathering love for you. Jonah reminds us that God is great. God is great. He is wonderful, marvellous. He is great. He is just and fair. His throne is established on righteousness and justice. But as well as that, because of what Jesus did on the cross, he is gracious and merciful, able to be gracious and merciful to us. Jesus tells us that Jonah is a sign to us in Matthew chapter 12. Jonah is a sign because he's just as he spent three days and nights inside a fish, Jesus spent three days buried in a tomb after dying on the cross. As a result of Jonah's deliverance from the fish, Jonah preached of God's grace and mercy to the people of Nineveh. Likewise, because Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus' challenge to people today is to turn to God and come home. Will you come home today? Maybe you don't know God. Maybe you've never given your life to Jesus. Maybe you know you're like the prodigal son in the, the story that Jesus tells in Luke 15 who's run away and squandered his inheritance. Wasted it. And foolish living. Jesus is saying and pleading with you, come home. There's a father waiting to embrace you. Waiting for the first sign of your turning was to run and sweep you up in his arms and bring you back into his family. Will you do that today? Will you come home? Nineveh's turning to God in Jonah is intended to scandalise God's people to repentance themselves. God's final challenge to Jonah, should I not be concerned about that great city, is left unanswered. This is the scandal of grace. Jonah doesn't reply. We don't know what, how Jonah responded. He was scandalised by God's grace. God's grace is so great, he wants to scandalise us. He wants us to be shocked at how amazing his grace is. He wants us to know how great his heart of compassion is for the people of this area. What's our response? Are there tears in our eyes? 
for this city? God weeps over this city. He weeps over your neighbours, your work colleagues, your friends. He wants you to have his heart for this city. He wants you to be bringers of his grace and his mercy in the street that you live, in the place that you work, the college that you go to, the school that you attend. What's your response going to be? We don't know how Jonah responded. God wants you to respond to him today. Can I ask the musicians to come out? I want us to stand in God's presence this morning. Just going to ask the prayer team to come out to the front, be ready to pray for people. We're going to sing a song in a moment in response to this. And I want you to respond in your heart to God. Say, God, I want your heart for this city, for my neighbours. Thank you for your great heart for me. Help me to have your heart for the place where I live and the people I mix with. Let that be the response of your heart during the worship. But if you don't know Jesus, if you've never given your life to him, I'd love to give you the opportunity to respond. If you know that you need to come home, you know that you've been struggling, you've been squandering your inheritance. Maybe you had Christian parents and you've wasted it. You've been wasting your inheritance. And you know it's time to come home. Don't miss this moment. Love you to come and respond. We'd love to pray with you. Maybe there's a specific issue, injustice that you're struggling with, stuff you've been struggling with for years. Come, let's pray with you. Let's stand with you. Father, we open our hearts to you. I ask by your spirit, you come amongst us. Oh God, would you give us your heart for this city. Father, thank you for your great heart for us. Your grace and your mercy towards us. How much you love us. You are amazing. What an amazing God. We are scandalised by your grace. Scandalised. We're shocked by it, Father. That you could love a people like us. Oh God, how amazing you are. We want to run to you today. We want your heart of grace. Come on us, Holy Spirit. Touch us this morning. In Jesus' name.